prayer is a pillar of our church. We want to continue to um, depend upon the Lord for all the needs that we have in our ministries. And we also want to use it as an opportunity on a regular basis just to bring our praises to him because he's faithful to provide us with so many things. His mercies are new indeed every morning. Well, today is a special day, and I would like to share some exciting news. Uh, Victoria and I are expecting, and so, um, but, but let me qualify this statement, okay? So just b- b- before you, um, just allow me to qualify it. Recently, um, I had the use of my father-in-law's vehicle um, to drive around, and, and it died. And um, so uh, we were able to get another car, and um, as a result... Our lives are, are going to be back to some normalcy because we'll be a two-car family. And so we're expecting that to help us get back on track a little bit, okay? So we're not expecting a fourth child. And how dare you think that, okay? That you would just even think that frightens me. Uh, uh, it, it's so funny because Francis and I were having a conversation. I can't even remember what I was talking about. We were over at his house, and um, I said something um, like, oh, um, I have some exciting news. And he, he turned to me and he said, he goes, you guys are expecting again. And I about, I about had a heart attack. I was like, no, no, we're not. We're not, okay? It, it was just uh, really a lot of fun. And um, I really do have some exciting news to share, something that's uh, special for me personally this morning. I have a dear brother in Christ, and he's going to be so embarrassed that I'm even acknowledging his presence but he is uh, my best friend. You've heard me speak of him uh, since my arrival. His name is George Hyan. He is here with his wife, Iris, and their uh, three kids are here with us as well. Philip, John, Phoebe, Joy, and Joseph Jairus. They're absolutely uh, spectacular, and we're just we're so thankful. It was 10 years ago that I, I began the journey at the Master's Seminary, and I sat down in the front row, and I looked over, and there was this uh, Korean brother sitting right next to me. And um, the Lord um, used George in great measure to bless and encourage me all the way through the difficult journey of seminary. He also used George in great measure to, um, be, it's because of George that I know what kimchi is. And I, I know what kimchi also tastes like. And I can even say some unique Korean words like muragogi and kamsahamnida. Um, and I mean, basic Korean that, that George has taught me. He, it's because of George also that um, I drive more cautiously and um, I, I eat more slowly, right, George? That's an inside joke, but um, George, is, um, George savors his meals and Iris is a, a, a great cook. And it's, we're just thrilled that you would be with us today, George. So um, you'll get a chance to, to meet and interact with him after the service. And Victoria is at home with uh, two of our girls who have runny nose and coughs, and so uh, we didn't feel like contaminating the nursery this morning, and we knew that other parents would appreciate that. Well, um, we are going to continue our study in Titus together, and we're going to zoom in this morning on the elder qualifications. And I wanted to begin our time by sharing this brief story. Dr. Evan O'Neill Kane made history twice in the same day. The chief surgeon of Kane Summit Hospital in New York City was convinced that local anesthesia was, better, was a better option than the accepted practice of always 
using general anesthesia. Dr. Kane felt the patients sustained too many risks when completely put under. His plan was to find a volunteer who would allow him to perform an appendectomy, an operation he had performed nearly 4,000 times with local anesthesia. The search was difficult because prospects feared the local deadening might wear off, leaving them in great pain. Others did not believe it would work. At last, Dr. Kane found a willing volunteer. On February 15, 1921, the volunteer was prepared for surgery and given local anesthesia. The 60-year-old surgeon performed the procedure without any complications. Dr. Kane proved his point as the patient experienced only minor discomfort. Naturally, Dr. Kane became famous as a surgeon that day. But even more interesting is the fact that he became famous for being the patient as well. He proved his theory by operating on himself. In many ways, I feel like Dr. Kane today. I'm not going to operate, be operated on physically, but in a spiritual sense, as we continue our study in Titus on the priority of spiritual leadership, and as we look at the elder qualifications, I am putting my life on display. And so are Huey, Hyun, and Francis. We recognize that just like Dr. Kane, who understood that that um, the, the, the power of local anesthesia, right, was we, he believed firmly in it. We also know that God uses his word and continues to use his word, and we believe in these qualifications because they're true, they're right, and they're necessary. And so it's good for us as elders and our leadership to be evaluated regularly through the lenses of these qualifications. And there are many different reasons why, but I wanted to provide three that I thought would help. First, elder qualifications reveal God's redemptive grace. That God redeems anyone, wicked and vile as mankind is, should always cause our hearts to praise Him. And we can never lose sight of Romans 3 and the Gospel. Romans 3.10, there is none righteous, no, not one. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks God. All have turned aside together. They have become useless. There is none who does good. There is not even one. And it continues. Our throats are like a grave. Our tongues are deceiving. Our lips are like poison. Cursing and bitterness filled our lives. Our feet shed blood. Destruction and misery was on our paths. The path of peace we could not know. And there's no fear of God. There was no fear of God in our eyes. But yet, through the grace of the gospel, God did the unthinkable. God unveiled the truth, right? God in His goodness, God in His grace, removed the scales from our eyes so that we could see and that we could hear and know the truth in our desperate need. And through God's redemptive grace, church leaders, along with its members, are saved to serve the Lord's desired will. Secondly, 
elder qualifications reveal God's transforming grace. That God can take sinful men and transform them so that they can be used as instruments in His hands in the church is amazing. And this is true for elders. It's true for deacons and deaconesses. It's true for anyone who serves in any type of leadership capacity in the church. And it's easy for us to lose sight of this. Very easy. But God's faithfulness to transform us in spiritual growth as believers prepares us for the spiritual leadership roles that He has ordained for us in the church. This is Hebrews 13 language. As God equips us in every good thing to do His will, working in us that which is pleasing in His sight. Elder qualifications remind us of this transforming reality. Thirdly, Elder qualifications reveal God's sustaining grace. Not only does God in His faithfulness redeem spiritual leaders, not only does God in His faithfulness transform spiritual leaders, but He does something beyond that. He sustains us through godly character so that we can remain leaders. 1 Corinthians 1.8 states that He will confirm us to the end. And so we want to exalt God's work in our lives in every way from beginning to end. It's a cornerstone ministry pillar that we would progress in evangelism and discipleship. And we celebrate God's work in our lives by providing faithful men and women whom He has used and continues to use so that we can develop as leaders in different capacities and roles within the church. And I'm not familiar with a testimony where someone was saved and immediately thrown right in as an elder or a prominent church leader, right? There's discipleship that takes place. In God's providence, there's an investment in that life that allows this person to be prepared for their spiritual role in the future and praise His name. Well, If you were here with us last week, you know that our sermon is already set up for us this week. But if you weren't here last week, then we'll catch you up along the way. Let's read our passage again, and we're going to be studying Titus 1, verses 4 through 9. And it says this, starting in verse 1 of Titus chapter, or excuse me, verse 4 of Titus uh, chapter 1. To Titus, my true child in a common faith. Grace and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Savior. For this reason I left you in Crete, that you would set in order what remains and appoint elders in every city as I directed you. If any man is above reproach, the husband of one wife, having children who believe, not accused of dissipation or rebellion. For the overseer must be above reproach as God's steward, not self-willed, not quick-tempered, not addicted to wine, not pugnacious, not fond of sordid gain, but hospitable, loving what is good, sensible, just, devout, self-controlled, holding fast the faithful word which is in accordance with the teaching, so that he will be able to both exhort in sound doctrine and to refute those who contradict. The title of today's message is The Priority of Church Leadership, Part 2. And you'll see that we covered 
Uh, in the sermon outline that's in your bulletin, we covered the first point last week and we're prepared now to cover our second point. And the sermon proper, uh, proposition and outline are both in your notes. God's people, instructed by God's word, appoint and assess God's leaders so that the church will be led God's way. Our first point shared that God's leaders appoint God's leaders. And we confirmed that on a, a level of importance, on a scale of 1 to 10, that spiritual leadership in the church is an 11 plus, right? We get that. We shared that even the world recognizes the importance of strong leadership as it pursues worldly things and, and worldly pursuits. We also mentioned that due to integrationists promoting pop psychology, that God's Word in many churches today has been minimized when it comes to establishing biblically qualified leadership by assuming that something else is needed in order to establish it. Our passage then affirmed Paul's purpose for leaving Titus in Crete. And we also looked at Paul's example in Acts as he and Barnabas traveled from city to city to evangelize, only to come back later and revisit them and establish maturing elders in the churches. We confirmed that they established a plurality of elders in each church. We also confirmed that the office of leadership in our passage is represented by three Greek words that can be used interchangeably. We had episkopos, which is uh, translated overseer. We had presbyteros, which means elders. And then we had uh, uh, poimen, which is translated pe- uh, shepherd or pastor. Go figure, I can't remember that one. But um, we also saw Paul's clear instruction to Titus. Titus was to appoint a plurality of elders in each church as he literally went city by city just as Paul directed him according to verse 5. And we ended our message last week by affirming the proposition once again. God's people instructed by God's word appoint and assess God's leaders so that, so that, so that the church, the church, the church will be led God's way. Then we asked some pretty important questions. We asked who or what qualifies a person to serve in this leadership capacity? Is it their character? Is it their giftedness? Is it some combination of those two? Is it an office only reserved for men? How can you know who is qualified? And this led us to our second point of the sermon. God's Word assesses God's leaders. In Titus 1, verses 6-9, through the Holy Spirit led Paul to record the qualifications for elders, pastors, and overseers, which again, we said, can be used interchangeably because it's the same office. How is God's Word used to assess or evaluate an elder, pastor, and overseer? In verses 6-9, through we set it up for us. It, um, the, following, the ending four verses... Uh, provide four specific ways, and I said that I would include those in your sermon notes, and you should have them in there. The first one is this. God's Word assesses a leader's relationship to his own family. In verse 6, and we're introduced to this general assessment about being above reproach. And then 
it moves, our passage moves to these specific assessments. And in verse 6, it talks about him both as a husband and as a father. In verse 7, God's word assesses a leader's relationship to his own character. In verse 8, his word assesses a leader's relationship to others. And in verse 9, God's word assesses a leader's relationship to God's word. Well, let's start digging into verse 6, which reads as follows. If any man is above reproach, the husband of one wife having children who believe, not accused of dissipation or rebellion. Verse 6 begins with this phrase. If any man is above reproach. And this, this qualification really functions as a, a, really like an umbrella. Okay? And all the other specific qualifications come are covered underneath. This is really the, the, the specified uh, assessments or uh, ensuing qualifications really define what it means to be above reproach. There's also something else very important for us to see. Uh, besides this, this blanket or broad assessment of being above reproach. The, our, our verse starts out this way. It says something, uh, it, it says, if any man in, in the NASB, but in the Greek it's actually a pronoun that can be rendered anyone. And that is how the ESV translates it. I remember having a conversation, Huey, I don't know if you remember this. We, we actually talked about this at some point back in um, Shepherd's Conference when we were talking about translations and I love Huey because he just he loves commentaries and he loves talking about translations. I, so we're kindred spirits in that regard. So we, we were talking about this, and because it says just anyone, and, and that's really how it, 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 it can be uh, translated, the, the NASB says, and other translations say, if any man. And this verse has been a source of debate based on English translations, that the Greek pronoun is not a reference to men only. In Greek and Latin, there are three grammatical genders, which are male, female, and neuter. Okay, And neuter would function as neutral. No side with male or female. Okay, And this is a masculine pronoun in verse 6. And so if you should ever encounter someone who claims that this passage is not focused only on male leadership and that women should be considered for the role of an overseer, you will be very equipped to answer them. You will be able to let them know that this is a masculine pronoun. Not only that, but it goes on to describe that an overseer is the husband of one wife. And not only that, all the ensuing qualifications that come after it are masculine as well. Grammatically masculine. And so we are talking about men only when talking about this position of church leadership. This is very important. God's Word provides clarity, and this is discovered through proper exegesis. And so we have this umbrella term that is translated above reproach that can also be translated blameless or without accusation. A good seminary friend 
shared an expression that's really a, a play on words. He said, to be above reproach is really to be above a roach. Okay? That was his little memory key. Unlike a dirty, slithery, disgusting roach that most of us would prefer to step on and kill, right? The opposite of this is a clean, honest, upright person marked with integrity. It's a general and overarching description of godly character. And it's non-negotiable. If you go over to the parallel passage in 1 Timothy 3.2, we get a verb that comes with it. And and 3.2, it says that an elder must be above reproach. It's a verb that is a present active in the Greek. And so it could mean an overseer must make it their habit to be above reproach. Above reproach. The present tense underscores that these obligations for leadership never cease to apply. As one commentator shared, quote, elders serve together in a plurality, but stand alone as individuals as to their qualifications. There is consistency in godly character when a man is above reproach. And Spurgeon shared, don't be like the man who preached so well, nobody wanted him to leave the pulpit. But when he came out, he lived so badly that nobody wanted him to get back behind it again. Wise words from a wise man who practiced what he preached. There's also a legal sense associated with this term. So it can be translated without accusation. The overall tenor, tone, and quality of this elder's life is beyond accusation. He lives his life in such a way that there are no fingers pointing at him he is a man that is worthy of emulation esteem honor and respect because he is reputable as a reputable man he can serve as a trusted leader he can serve as a mentor he can serve as a disciple he can serve as a confidant and friend his deeds match his doctrine and his lips match his life he is whole he is complete He is, as Pastor David Cummings, if he were here today, would say, without wax. You may recall a sermon that Pastor David preached um, back in Philippians 1. And in verse 10, it actually uses the word blameless, but the the Greek word was um, elekrines, which is translated sincere, okay? But it literally means without wax. And for those that weren't here for that message, it was common in the ancient Near East for potters to go ahead and make pottery. And oftentimes they would drop pottery or it would get cracked or broken. And then what they would do is they would mend it together with wax. They would paint over it and nobody would be able to tell that it was broken until they took it home and they heated it up to cook something in it. And then what would happen? That wax would melt. And that pot would break. And these fractured pots, when heated under flame, would break once melted. And they were painted beautifully on the outside, but they had no integrity in their structure on the inside. And an elder is a man of integrity both inside and out. He's not a cracked vessel. He is steady and sturdy, sincere and steadfast. There is no blatant error in his life. 
no flagrant disqualification, no, obviously, no obvious slip or breach in his character. He's not going to be a man who lives one life in public and an entirely different life in private. His character is unchanging regardless of where he is or whom he is with. Now, let's make sure that we understand what it doesn't mean. Being above reproach does not mean that a man is sinless. I think we can all testify to that. Amen. It does not mean that a man is sinless. In fact, 1 John 1.8 says, If we say that we have no sin, we're deceiving ourselves, and the truth is not in us, right? To be above reproach means that when we do sin, we don't ignore it. We're not going to conceal it. And we're going to lead the charge in going before God and before men to confess our sins. Okay? Back in 2010, shortly after Lydia was born, and she may have only been a couple months old, Victoria and I were on our way to a ministry event, and we were driving in our car. And we were in a part of Hickory, North Carolina, where I hadn't driven a whole lot, and two lanes merged down into one. Okay? And I was driving relatively safe. I think parents who have their first infant can relate to this, right? One, you can't believe that they're going to let you take them home from the hospital. And then you put them in a car seat, and you're just worried, right? You just, there's some anxiety there. You're like, we just need to get home. We just need to get home. Well, I was driving down the road with Victoria and Lydia, a couple months old, was in the back seat, and the, the lanes were coming to an end, and so um, they were going to merge together. And I was a little a bit ahead of this car, and so um, I went to merge over, and this car sped up to, to not let, it, let us in, and the road was literally running out. So they were, they were going to run us off the road, okay? And... I immediately had to do what I had to do was to pull over in front and, and continue driving. And the, the car behind me wasn't too happy with that. So much so that they came up and they were literally riding in my trunk. And they turned on their high beams. Okay? So what do you think I did? What do you think I did? I stopped the car. I stopped the car in the middle of the highway. I proceeded to get out of the car and I turned around and I said, what are you doing? Think. Okay. I was angry. I was boiling. Here I was trying to drive safely with precious cargo and all of a sudden, this person posed a real threat. But I want to tell you something. The anger of man does not achieve the righteousness of God. It does not. And I got out of that car, and I was visibly seen, and any of a number of things could happen, right? Somebody could have a gun. They could have shot me. I could have been hit by traffic coming the other way. It was foolish. It was foolishness on my part. I could have just pulled over and just let them pass. But instead, I got out and 
I made my presence known, and you could, I'm, I have to smile a lot because I'm a pretty intimidating guy, as it is, right? Being a bigger guy, so uh, not smiling. And I thought about what happens if that person shows up at Harvest Bible Chapel and is invited. <laughs> I was thinking that. And I was convicted. And, and, I, and honestly, I, I went to the elders, and in God's providence, there was actually an elders meeting the next day, and I just shared with them. I wanted them to, 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 I wanted them to know what happened. And I wanted to share also just even for their own benefit. And I shared it with our elders too as well. I realized, God, I'm not, I wish things would have worked out differently. I wish I would have been walked in the spirit and not in my flesh so much that day. I really do. But I'm thankful that it happened. Why? Because God taught me a valuable lesson that day. He allowed me to see how in a moment I could um, no longer be above reproach. In a moment, it would be that easy for us to fall. And as believers, all of us are called to be blameless and above reproach. Just as Philippians 1.10 teaches us, just as 2 Peter 3.14 instructs us. And maybe your reproach isn't how you're driving your car on the highway. Or maybe it is. Maybe your reproach comes by where you allow yourself to drive on the internet. Maybe your reproach comes where you allow yourself to drive in a strained or broken relationship. Maybe your reproach comes by where you allow your heart to drive with impure thoughts or your attitude towards co-workers or towards others. The call of the Christian life is a call to a life without wax. It's a call to integrity so that we do not bring a reproach on the name of Christ at school, at work, at the gym, at home. If you should go to the moon or Mars, it's still going to apply there. Everywhere we go, that is the call of the Christian life. Being above reproach is the call on our lives as believers. And striving in Christ, empowered by the gospel to live a life above reproach is something that we're all called to do. And the difference for the elder, pastor, overseer, again, all same office, it must, it must be a general characteristic of their spiritual life in Christ. For a Christian, it is pursued. And it should be. For an elder, it is a principle of reality. The priority of church leadership demands consistency and character. So this is, I'm feeling like Dr. Kane a lot right now. Right? Vulnerable, as we should. And I hope my fellow elders in the room feel that way too. But I'm also missing the point if... If those of you who serve in, uh, as deacons, those of you who serve in some other level of leadership, if, if we don't all share the gravitas with this, the, the weightiness of this, I'll be missing the point. And again, an overseer must be above reproach. And Paul is not speaking of sinless perfection. He himself, in 1 Timothy 1.15, even describes himself in the present tense that he's the chief of all sinners. Paul is simply declaring that leaders in Christ's church 
must have no regular sinful defect in their lives that could justly call their virtue, their integrity, their testimonies into question and bring an indictment against them. Well, our journey through point number two continues. God's word assesses God's leaders, and the first way that it does this is with this general assessment of being above reproach. Now our passage provides specific assessments that describe what this looks like. Verses 6 through 9 provide for us 15 qualifications. I said that correctly. 15 specific assessments or descriptors of being above reproach. And some say that these, uh, these items tend to focus <clears throat> on two specific areas, a man's life and a man's lips. How he lives and how he talks reveals God's growth, his, his, God's spiritual work in his heart. And in the first sub-point of your sermon outline under point number two, it says God's word assesses a leader's relationship to his own family for verse 6. And it does this in two unique ways. First, as a husband, and then as a father. And verse 6 continues. An elder should be above reproach, and now our first specific assessment comes in the following phrase. He should also be the husband of one wife. What does this mean? How should we understand this? Simply stated, the husband of one wife is a man who abides in marital faithfulness throughout the providentially allotted time for the spiritual union of their marriage. He's also one who demonstrates a pattern of affection and desire exclusively for his spouse. And the Greek construction literally means a one-woman man. And the Greek words used in this verse are... Two common New Testament words that are actually translated man and woman, but given the context, they're translated husband and wife. And the phrase husband of one wife and its related phrase, the wife of one man, occur four times in the New Testament. And every one of the occurrence is talking about qualifications. In 1 Timothy 3.2, An overseer then must be above reproach, the husband of one wife. In verse 12, deacons must be the husbands of only one wife. In 1 Timothy 5.9, it's actually speaking to widows. And it says this, a widow is to be put on the list only if she is not less than 60 years old. That's some serious double negative going on right there. What it's saying is if she's over 60, right? That's how we translate. But it also says that she should be the wife of one man. And then the fourth fourth occurrence that we have in the New Testament is right here in Titus 1.6. And so there's much debate about the conclusions that are reached um, and what these words uh, imply. And most exegetes have arrived at one of the four conclusions. And I didn't have these in your notes, so if you want to jot these down, you're welcome to. It's interesting the first possible conclusion is that elders must be married. The second conclusion is that elders cannot be polygamous. The third conclusion says elders may marry only once. And the fourth conclusion says elders must be maritally and sexually above reproach. 
and our time is running out on us, but I want to give you scriptures with each of these conclusions that will help us arrive at what Paul was ultimately trying to express. If you'll turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 7, which that is a great chapter, right, on marriage for us to reference. 1 Corinthians chapter 7 and the first three all involve passages from, or, or verses from 1 Corinthians chapter 7. First, being a husband of one wife does not mean that an elder must be married. And if this was such a priority, certainly Paul would have stated this when he was being led by the Holy Spirit. And Paul even confirms the gift of singleness, and he mentions his own singleness in 1 Corinthians 7, 8. Paul, he says this, But I say to the unmarried and to widows, that it is good for them if they remain even as I. Second, elders must not be polygamous. The New Testament forbids it. And we see this in 1 Corinthians 7.2 that states each man is to have his own wife and each woman is to have her own husband. And there's immorality that's associated with that if you do not. The first two are pretty clear. When we get to number three, that's when it starts to get a little bit more difficult, okay? The third conclusion shares that elders should only marry once, and this is really subject to debate. God's Word clearly says that if someone is widowed, that it is permissible for them to marry again. If you go all the way down to verse 39, it says, a wife is bound as long as her husband lives, but if her husband is dead, she is free to be married to whom she wishes only in the Lord. And here it only mentions a woman, but if you'll go to Romans chapter 7 and read the first three verses there, it spells it out even more clearly and includes both men and women. Now, additional questions arise specifically around the area of divorce and remarriage. And it appears that this is not what our passage is focused on, otherwise Paul again would have addressed it. But it is worth mentioning that God does hate divorce, right? We know this. Malachi 2.14 lets us know that God hates divorce, but He does permit it in two instances. He does provide concessions for a believer for divorce in two, or, or two, uh, uh, in two concessions. In New Testament times, divorce was rampant. And, and in fact, depending on the area where you lived, um, it would be just as rampant in their culture as it is in ours today. Okay? Um, uh, this is a, a quote that I read by Jay Adams, and this has always stuck with me, and I want to share it with you because I believe that it will bless your understanding. All divorces are caused by sin. But not all divorces are sinful. Okay? Good, good for, that's a good memory key. Um, just as they come up with coworkers and conversations and discipleship relationships to talk about marriage because it's so, you know, m marriage is uh, the primary institution of the family. It's good to know that all divorces are caused by sin, but not all divorces are sinful. God does provide a concession if 
Uh, one is caught up in adultery in Matthew 5:32. Uh, there's a concession for di- uh, divorce. And the other is abandonment in 1 Corinthians 7:15. And both of these concessions provide a Christian who is married to someone who in the end, through their actions and their attitude, prove themselves to be unbeliever by staying in unrepentant adultery or unrepentant abandonment. They refuse to come back to their spouse. And so when answering the question, can someone be qualified to be an elder who has been divorced? As one might expect, there are numerous scenarios that could be considered. And time won't allow us to chase that rabbit. I mean, there's so many different scenarios. But the short answer is this. If a man is divorced prior to being converted, or if a man is a believer and the marriage ends in a biblical divorce and he's not responsible, and again, this is where it it, it gets really, really tricky. There is the potential possibility that such a man could be considered as an elder. Potentially. And even when we were at Masters, I, uh, I remember that we had a couple guys who um, were divorced and it was prior to their uh, conversions in Christ. And I, I know that there's been examples, though, of, of men who have been left. In fact, I think we all got Dr. Buznitz's um, story, if you remember, George. He he talked about the, the guy who was married to his books for three years of seminary. And on his graduation day, he came in to get his wife to go to the graduation ceremony. And his wife piled up all of his books on his bed and said, you've been married to these for the last three years. You can stay married to them. I'm done. Wow. So it gets tricky okay and we really would need a a lot more time than we have to consider uh, the scenarios there's some good materials written on it jay adams book um, marriage divorce and remarriage is is a good uh, book to consider even strock and and biblical eldership there's another book if there's a scratch there um, uh, or uh, yeah if if there's an itch there (laughs) that you want to scratch you can go ahead and Go ahead and and pursue those resources. Well, the fourth and final conclusion is that elders must be maritally and sexually above reproach. And this is truly what Paul is driving at. The husband of one wife is a positive statement expressing a faithful, monogamous, covenant-keeping commitment on behalf of the elder to his spouse. An elder must not be an adulterer either sexually or emotionally. Physical and emotional affairs are only reserved for his wife. And what we do know is that there's no greater area of failure in the ministry than money and marital infidelity. That's, that, that is the most common. And an elder's ministry hangs on the coattails, really, of their marriage. And if you want to talk to any of the elders, they'll affirm for you that we've made it uh, a regular part of our, our meetings that we check in with each other and we just ask how things are at home. How, how are things in your marriage? It's that important. 
We also have what's called elder care group, and we try to get together because the cricks are not yet in a care group, but it's happening, right, Huey? It's going to happen. But until then, we have elder care group, and we, we look forward to that time that we can get together because we have accountability there as well. But there's a true story about a pastor who ended up having an affair with one of the secretaries on staff, an administrative staff at a church far from here. Trust me, it's far. And he, after being romantically involved for a couple months, uh, finally under conviction, confessed his sin to the elders and, and stepped down from leadership. And he made his sin known before the congregation, and he was restored to the fellowship okay, of the church, not restored as an elder. Well, this man ended up staying there. If the story ends there, praise the Lord. That's a, that's a great, great um, ending to that story. But what happened with that elder staying, staying at that church, it's a lesson for us to learn. Many people just still saw him and couldn't distinguish between him being a pastor and constantly came to him to seek his counsel. And a couple years went by, and someone proposed that he go ahead and just resume being on the elder board. And so the proposal was made, and the elders got together, and they made a decision, and they didn't believe that he was above reproach, that, there, that, that, that it was possible, okay? And long story short, a few hundred people ended up leaving this church with this elder to go plant a church, and I'm not kidding you, a block and a half away from the existing church, and they called it the new such and such church, using the exact same name of the ministry. Can you imagine? Can you imagine? That alone, that pugnacious, indictive spirit, that that alone proved that that man wasn't restored um, or, or qualified. And, and all of this started with a crumbled marriage. We can call it the recipe for distress. A failing marriage plus an adulterous heart equals a disqualified servant. That's the equation. A failing marriage plus an adulterous heart equals a disqualified servant, and that is man or woman. It doesn't matter if you're an elder, a deacon, a deaconess, an usher, a Sunday school teacher. A failing marriage always leads to a failing ministry. Proverbs 6, verses 32 to 33, it says, The one who commits adultery with a woman is lacking sense. He who would destroy himself does it. Wounds and disgrace he will find. And it says this, And his reproach will not be blotted out. And we can contrast it to Ecclesiastes 9.9, which says this, Enjoy life with the woman whom you love all the days of your fleeting life, which He has given to you under the sun. For this is your reward in life and in your toil in which you have labored under the sun. Short answer, be a one-woman man. Puritan writer Thomas Watson said, Adultery is the shipwreck of chastity, the murder of the conscience. A wandering eye is the fruit of a wandering heart, and a fixed eye is the fruit of a focused faith. 
To be above reproach requires having a fixed heart on Christ so that we don't wander off in any area of sin. And it also allows us to glorify Christ through our testimonies in this world. And as an elder or a deacon or a deaconess, as a leader of any kind, as a Christian, we're called to be above reproach. And one of the first ways we do this is by honoring God in our marriages, or if you are single, honoring God with your spiritual preparation to be married. Our lives are on display to be seen. I found a poem written by a man named Edgar Guest. And the title of the poem, and I don't know that you've heard it, but I want to read it for us. And then our worship team will come up and lead us in a response song. It's called Sermons We See. I'd rather see a sermon than hear one any day. I'd rather one should walk with me than merely tell the way. The eyes a better pupil and more willing than the ear find counsel is confusing, but examples always clear. And the best of all the preachers are the men who live their creeds, for to see good put in action is what everybody needs. I soon can learn to do it if you'll let me see it done. I can watch your hands in action, but your tongue too fast may run. And the lecture you deliver may be very wise and true, but I'd rather get my lessons by observing what you do. For I might misunderstand you and the high advice you give, but there's no misunderstanding how you act or live. When I see a deed of kindness, I am eager to be kind. When a weaker brother stumbles, a strong man stands behind. Just to see if he can help him, then the wish grows strong in me to become as big and thoughtful as I know that friend to be. And all travelers can witness that the best of guides today is not the one who tells them, but the one who shows the way. One good man teaches many. Men believe what they behold. One deed of kindness noticed is worth 40 that are told. Who stands with men of honor learns to hold his honor dear, for right living speaks a language which to everyone is clear. The one able speaker charms me. With his eloquence I say, I'd rather see a sermon than hear one any day. And I think we all say amen to that. Right? And those of us in discipleship relationships, your primary primary um, and greatest form of discipling anyone is leading by example. It's a call to us as parents, even with, with, with our children, no matter what their age, we're constantly those little sponges. We're leading them, are we not? By example. We are the sermon that they see. Your coworkers and your friends and your response to circumstances and situations. You are the sermon that they see. We are. And it's a great privilege and a great opportunity for us to give God the glory that He so richly deserves through a redeemed life, through a transformed life, and yes, 
through a sustained life. Pray with me. Gracious Father, we love you. We celebrate your grace and goodness in every facet of our lives. We acknowledge our sinful bent. We acknowledge our fallenness. We recognize the reality that it's only through grace that our hearts could ever be changed. It is through Christ and through the gospel that we have been redeemed and pulled out of the miry pit. And now as a result, you're preparing us for our spiritual futures. And everyone in this room that is a disciple is called to be a spiritual leader in some capacity. It is the call of discipleship. And you've called us to lead by example. And I thank you for my dear and faithful brothers who serve as elders. for your faithfulness to us. The way that you have grown us and allowed us to come to a place to serve in this church. Lord, not to us. Not to us, but to your name be the glory. And for all of us, all of us, Father, who want to be effective leaders for your namesake, we get one shot at this life I pray that as we consider the reality of our unity in this church, I pray that we will be without wax. I pray, Father, that we will be filled, church, with vessels where there are no cracks. There is no wax holding us together, but there will be integrity and honor and trust. That your name will be magnified through all the future days of the ministry that take place in this church. Lord, you're so good to us. Help us to be stewards of that which has been entrusted to us. Our leadership, our giftedness, the gospel. With a lost world around us, there is so much to be done. Help us not to be stagnant. Help us not to be self-absorbed. Help us to step away from self and step to you and step to the church and step into service. I pray, Father, that you will provide prayer warriors for this church that will sign up today, that will bear the great burden and the responsibilities of this church and our needs and petition you daily, weekly, monthly, throughout the year so that we can be grown so that the ministry can grow for your namesake, that the body can be grown so that the head can be exalted. Lord, thank you for this time that we've had to rally around your word. May you use Titus even more so in the future to draw us together as a church family. We praise you and thank you for this day. In Christ's name, amen.